you would please turn to the Gospel of Matthew. I'll be reading Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Let's pray. Father, I pray for the, the mercy that flows from the cross and brings dead sinners to life. Indeed, the mercy that causes us to see the truth of Your Son and Your eternal glory in Him as the treasure in the field that is worth far more than everything else we own or have or have been gifted with. Do that work in those who have not yet seen and continue to shine the light brighter upon the treasure of all of us who are yours. To the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the third week in the series, The Core Values of Sovereign Grace Fellowship. Just briefly to recap, over the last two weeks we dealt with core value number one, which in short is the foundation of everything is God. That God the only eternal one without beginning, without end, is by definition infinitely happy and contented in His internal community of the Holy Trinity. As the Father has from eternity and with omnipotence and omniscience been adoring the knowledge of Himself as His own object. And the Son, and the Son, and the Father, and that community has for eternity stood forth, personified as the joy of God. In God. And we saw that therefore God is needless. There's no lack. There's no hole in Him. So why did He create? He created not in order to get something that He did not already have, but He created in order to overflow that which He eternally is. His internal glory going outward. Alright, if you hadn't heard those sermons, they're on the internet. Listen to them. Because I'm going to assume those now. That leads very directly to core value number two. If that be true of who God is, how therefore shall we creatures respond to Him? The answer in short is faith, trust, dependence, reliance. So the contention of core value number two 
is this. Because God created in order to share His eternal joy and happiness within Himself, with humanity, whom He made in His image in order to do such, Therefore, the goal of every believer, the goal of every local church ought to be to go hard after God daily to find our joy and our satisfaction in Him. And thus, because of that, and through that, in all that we do, that displays His infinite worth as the infinite fountain of joy to those around us. You see, the human experience is that we have all been born with a gaping vacuum or hole, the center of our being that longs for fulfillment, longs and yearns for happiness. It, it seems to be there, but it's just always unattainable truly and it drives us throughout our lives to look for it in all the wrong places but the Bible is clear that that hole is a God-shaped hole a God-shaped vacuum not finite not made for created pleasures but for Him who is infinite Joy, and therefore he is the only one who can ultimately fill that soul's desire. And therefore, without him, ultimately, there is only frustration, delusions, and an unspeakable, godless eternity. Paul wrote it this way in 2 Thessalonians 1. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, when He comes on that day in order to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at by all who have believed. That is the ultimate design of creation, of history, of redemption. He will be marveled at by believers forever. And the rest will be banished from the presence of the glory of His might. That's what Jesus prayed hours before His torture and crucifixion in John 17, verse 24. Listen to Him. Father, I desire that they, whom You've given to Me, that they also may be with Me where I am in order to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
That's the goal of the cross. And then Jesus continues on in the prayer. In verse 26, I made known to them, my disciples, your name, and I will continue to make it known. And why? Here's his purpose. So that the love, Father, with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. In other words, Father, let them share in that great joy and delight that You have for eternity been delighting in Me. Putting them so that they will taste how beautiful Your glory is. Let the love and the joy, Father, that God has in God be the passion of every believer. And therefore, our goal as believers, our goal as local churches, and our goal as Sovereign Grace Fellowship is to be the pursuit of in everything we do in worship, in community, in fellowship, in evangelism, in service, in the workplace and at home, it is to seek to be as filled and as contented as we could possibly be in God, in Christ, by response to His Word and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. God's Ultimate joy is to glorify Himself by being our greatest satisfaction and joy. He commands joy in the Bible all over the place, and that's why, because He's loving, like Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. Or Psalm 32:11, Be glad in the Lord. And rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Or Psalm 100, verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Or Hebrews 11:6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and something else. And you must believe He rewards those who seek Him. John 6.35 Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. (laughs) And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But the words of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 2 verses 12 to 13 ring in the reality of this created world. Be appalled, O heavens, 
this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Why? Because my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And two, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves. Their own wills to think they're going to be satisfied. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. The good news of the Bible is that God is all about being our eternal well of joyful waters forever. That's why He declares through Jeremiah in chapter 32, I will rejoice, not begrudgingly, I am thrilled, I will rejoice in doing them good with all of my heart and with all of my soul. That's God. That's the God of the Bible. But not everyone has a share in God's eternal joy. Because there is a condition. There is a response to it that must be met. Psalm 147 verse 11 says it this way, The Lord takes pleasure in those and here it comes, who hope in Him. Romans 8.28 We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. But not for everyone. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so, there are those who are being saved. And there are those who are perishing. All of us are or have been perishing until faith sprung up by the miracle of new birth. See, the reason that we need to hear biblical text like the command, Rejoice in the Lord. Hope in God. Adore Him. Love Him. Praise Him. Delight yourself in the Lord. The reason we're desperate to hear those in our day is because to just say, believe in Jesus almost means nothing now. To say these other terms, delight yourself in Him, is not to say 
This is something you add on to faith. These are the way the Bible describes what saving faith is. We live in a superficial American evangelicalism where thousands of people think they're saved, but they're not. Twenty-one years ago on my honeymoon, I read these following words for the first time, which, that's it, I've known this to be true as I read the Bible over the last twelve years and in my experience in church life. From John Piper, his book, Desiring God, quote, Someone may ask, if your aim is conversion, Piper, why don't you just use the straightforward biblical command, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved? Because first, we are surrounded by unconverted people who think they do believe in Jesus. Drunks on the streets say they believe. Unmarried couples sleeping together say they believe. Elderly people who haven't sought worship or fellowship for 40 years say they believe. All kinds of lukewarm, world-loving church attenders say they believe. The world abounds with millions of unconverted people who say they believe in Jesus. It does no good to tell these people to believe in the Lord Jesus. The phrase is empty. My responsibility as a preacher of the Gospel and a teacher in the church is not to preserve and repeat cherished biblical sentences, but it is to pierce the heart with biblical truth. End quote. In other words, the point is this. Unless a person is born again, into a person who tastes the awesomeness, the beauty, the joy, the glory of who God actually is. In other words, unless they come into that experience that He's the answer of that hole that has been in me for 11 years, for 23 years, for 75 years. He's the answer of that longing. And thus they bank their hope and all their marbles in that good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Unless they've been born again to have that experience, according to Jesus, they cannot see the kingdom of God. That's what He said. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom. You can't see the beauty of the Gospel of Christ. See, this is where now, in these first two core values, where the cross of Jesus connects with the glory of God. We have all been created for God's glory. And the only way 
to respond to His glory is to see Him and appreciate Him and love Him from the heart for the all-sufficient One that He is. That from the heart, there's something that says now, yes! I need you! I'm finite! I'm a creature! You are my all in all. To whom else should I go? You are my master, my joy, my commander of what is good for me. You are the essence of meaning. And therefore all under that moral obligation by creation. At its core, that's what Genesis is about. I give you everything. Trust me. Adam, trust me. Trust me. Eat. Enjoy your life. Walk with me. In the cool of the day. Just trust me. I have your welfare at heart. Just, 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 one, just one little thing. Don't partake of tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Trust me. And he eventually said, and through him we have all eventually said, No! I don't trust that you're really out for my happiness. Just go read the story. That's Satan's argument. To Eve. Paul said it this way. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. And so, that is the essence of sin when we fail to do that. That is at the core of the fall. It's the core of every one of us who are sinners, which is all of us. And thus we have all failed. Fallen short. Paul writes it this way in Romans 1. For although they knew God... They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. And thus, Paul goes on to say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't mean we have failed to be as glorious as God is glorious. We have failed to see and appreciate the glory of His eternality and beauty and joy and happiness, His holy trinity and the all-sufficient one and said, Nah! Give me this, that, and the other. Instead of you, we have failed all of us to glorify Him as is the only unique object of true satisfaction. In chapter 1 of Romans, Paul made it very clear, just saying it this way, they, and it includes all of us, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. We have all, God says, here, take me, lessons of happiness and we go back to Costco in the line where you exchange it and say no thank you I want to get something else 
The essence of sin is turning away from God as the true source of all joy and all guidance. And therefore, we are all by nature under just condemnation because we have all spurned, turned away, ridiculed, belittled the glory of God by saying, I don't need you. And God's righteousness means, if you've been following these last three weeks now, it means that He must uphold the worth of His eternal glory. When we belittle the value of God's glory, He cannot just sweep it under the rug. Let's let bygones be bygones. He can't just say, well, my glory really isn't all that valuable. Let that one pass. If he did that, he would diminish his own glory. He would be sinful. God is eternal, infinitely worthy, and therefore the gravity of our crime against his infinite worth is eternal. The wages of sin is death. Paul writes it this way in 2 Thessalonians 1. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. And it's not just that we choose sin. It's that we all by nature are at our core sinners. As Ephesians 2 says, we are all by nature children of wrath. Born dead in our trespasses in sins. And this is why Jesus came into the world. The Gospel, it is the good news that God has made a way in order to satisfy His righteousness, His justice, His holiness, while not eternally condemning the entire human race. That's the Gospel. He made a way to deliver undeserving sinners from His eternal wrath without compromising His righteousness, His justice, His holiness. God upholds His glory in eternal condemnation. And He upholds His glory for many in the substitutionary atonement of His eternal Son, whom He has adored without beginning, who became man for us and for our salvation. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, the sin offering, the one who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 
the gospel. But everybody is not forgiven. Is not saved from the wrath which is to come just because Jesus came and died for sinners. There is a condition that one has to meet in order to reach final salvation at His second coming. They must come to God responding to His mercy in Jesus Christ. In other words, when they hear it, what do you say? They must taste it and see that the Lord is good. That's the condition. But we can't meet that condition because we are dead to God. Let me, I'm not this, comma, comma, comma right here. We can't meet that condition unless God acts upon our human hearts and causes us to be born again. Born again so that we come alive to the beauty and the desirability of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the glory of God radiating to us. That is called, in other words, saving faith. You see, from the fall of Adam on, what happened in him and all of us from him is that the light of the ability to see Him and enjoy Him from our heart, that went out because we became by nature sinners who by therefore nature dislike the reality of who God is. The desire to taste and see that He's good was snuffed out in the fall of man. And so... God speaks. He speaks through Moses. He speaks through the prophets. He sends His Son and He speaks through the apostles. He's been speaking for 2,000 years as the message, the good news of Jesus Christ goes out and our sin nature makes us unwilling to turn from short-term pleasures of creation to the everlasting joy of who God is for us in Jesus Christ. Can't do it. This is how Paul wrote it in 2 Corinthians 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, can't see it, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers in order to keep them from seeing the light of the Gospel, of the glory of Christ. You see, therefore, 
to become a Christian is not merely some natural self-help change of mind, jump through a hoop, say the right words, and repeat a prayer. It involves a miracle of God's very personal mercy changing our hearts and the eyes so that we see. And it's called various things. Jesus called it new birth. Or the way that Paul says it just a few verses later in the same context of 2 Corinthians 4 is this. But God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness. So you go back to Genesis and creation. Let, let light shine out of darkness. That God who creates. But God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown, meaning shined, in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what John Newton meant when he wrote, I once was blind, but now I see. That is what faith is. Eyes that see. It's heart that, that loves Him. And the evidence of new birth is that condition. Saving faith. Or just to use other terms, it is new taste buds for God. So, look, new birth is not a work of man. It's not something any of us can do and pull a lever and get baptized and new birth happens or something. New birth is a work of God. Period. Okay, now listen up. Got that? Responding to the truth of the gospel of Jesus is our work. That is, the condition that we meet in order to be justified by faith. There's just no grammar, language, talked about a graduation list a little bit. Important! To be justified, to be forgiven of your sins, to have Jesus' righteousness imputed to you is, is the most important thing there is. And that little English word, by, tells you, oh, there's a condition. It happens by that lever. Faith in you. That faith is the second core value of sovereign grace. Fellowship. In other words, why? Because we don't mean eh, faith. Okay, just believe. Let's not think about it too much. No, we're in a dangerous evangelical culture right now. No, we mean asking the Bible constantly, okay, what is that faith? 
not assuming it's merely mental assent to, oh yeah, I agree with that stuff. It is the change of heart. The change of desires from being dead to God is our treasure, uh-uh, uh-uh, to being alive to His tender, loving, glorious care that He sent His Son to die for me. To get at it another way. When I talk about, okay, what is this faith? It's going to spend a minute and a half. Ask the Bible. Just make it easy. Ask the New Testament. New Testament? What is it? Does anything have to happen in us that says you should have great assurance that you will be saved when Jesus returns? New Testament, what is it? Let me just give you a taste. If you do ask Acts chapter 16, verse 31, like the jailer did, Paul, Silas, what must I do in order to be saved? Their answer? Here's the verb. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Absolutely. Let me just put a parenthesis. If anyone hears me saying anything that is in contradiction to that right now, and you, you hear me say something different than that this morning, you have not correctly understood me yet. Okay? Because if we turn to John chapter 1, verse 12, John writes, to all who... Okay, he, he doesn't use the same verb here. He doesn't use the same action that's happening in human beings. Like belief. He uses a different verb. To all who received Him. He gave the right to become the children of God. Or in Acts 3, verse 19, Peter preaches the Gospel of Jesus Christ. What are we to do now? Peter answered with a different verb. Repent. And turn back again so that your sins may be blotted out. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews 5 verse 9 declares, Christ became the source of eternal salvation to all who... Who what? Well, he, it's true to all who believe. But that's not the word he put there. He, he is the eternal source. He's the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. He who does not obey, according to John 3, he who does not obey the Son shall not see Life. Jesus, unless you become something, unless this happens, unless you become His little children, you shall never see the kingdom of God. See, in other words, I mean, that's enough right now. 
point is this. When we ask the question, who are those who will finally or be finally saved at the consummation of the kingdom, the Bible answers with all kinds of different ways. So yes, it's true. New birth, there's nothing any of us can ever do. There's no condition we meet in order to be born again. Absolutely true. New birth is God's work. And it precedes, it comes before, and it causes saving faith. Absolutely. But nevertheless, that saving faith is necessary in order to be finally saved. And yes, faith is there prior to causing movements, actions, and decisions called repentance. Absolutely. It's not separate from it. Repentance is not added to faith. Nevertheless, that repentance is necessary. That is what it means to be converted to Christ. To have these evidences of new birth in some kind of measure. Never perfectly. Never without sin down here. But somewhere... Once I was once blind, I see. I have a different vision. There's something going on. I see my sin differently. I see the glory of Christ differently. And I see how they're in conflict within me. But to one measure or another, they're there. Now, because here's the danger. It's been the danger for 2,000 years of church history. People can take conditions like we just read from the New Testament to all who obey Him, to those who repent, to those who turn, to those who receive, and, and can say, oh yeah, okay, let's just go do those and twist them in such a way that is sinful. In other words, in a way that, it, that, that deems those movements or actions in this world towards God, towards Scripture, in a legalistic way that somehow earns or merits salvation, which is horrific thing to do but because of that here, here's the question then and all those kind of texts I just quoted what is it at the core that holds them all together as conditions ultimately for the resurrection of the just in other words what is it in them that is not legalistic that is the condition that unites them. It's the dynamic that impels a person to repent, to do them, to turn again, to believe, etc. Well, what is going on? What is the ongoing prior internal goings on that acts out in these ways? To simplify it, go to our text. Because Jesus answers that question in Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then... 
in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. That's the answer. Jesus just described the effect of new birth. He's describing what it looks like when one is brought to saving faith into the kingdom of God, which is present. He discovers a treasure. Just get your pirate movies out or whatever, and it's buried, and it's quadzillions of dollars. Not his field. And he's driven by joy. (laughs) Unbelievable! Did I really just find what I found? What do I have to do to get that? It's not mine right now. And he, by his joy, goes home and sells all that he has. Isn't the point clear? The treasure of eternal life. The treasure of God's very eternal glory in Himself and who He will be for us, which is the promise of the Gospel, that that is worth far more than any wife or husband or child or car or money or anything else we have. At this point, Jesus is saying a person becomes a Christian when the one true God in His glory manifested and revealed through His eternal Son who became a man in Jesus Christ becomes a treasure far superior to all other treasures they have. That's new birth. It creates those eyes to see the treasure. It creates new desires that act on those Holy Spirit-produced affections for Christ through the Word of God. To be born again, which brings about saving faith, means that Christ has become the answer to what I've been longing for. The treasure I've been looking for. The object that will fill that gaping hole in my soul. So much so that trusting Him, meaning what He says, trusting Him, obeying Him, and turning from all of these other desires in us that belittle Him, which are still there, so be comforted, Christian. They're still there. But it means that that trusting and obeying and turning becomes now our normal habit of life. It's your normal battle. Till you die. One day we will be without sin. We will be without competing desires that are constantly lying to us. 
Here's your true happiness. Just ignore God's word right now because you don't want to. You want to be really happy right now. Don't don't have long term vision. Okay, that's the Christian life. So if that's you and you feel that battle, that's good news. If you don't feel the battle, you don't know that battle. Bad news. Hear the gospel. Hear Christ. Flee to Him. At the core, at the very core of what it is, is the New Testament. Paul talks about living by faith, walking by faith, or walking by the Spirit. It is a constant coming and coming and coming to God, to His Word, to His promises. Coming to His command. I want to know how to be happy, God. Forever command me. That's at the core of walking by faith. That's why that joy produces people to die young because of the Gospel. Like Stephen. That's what produces sacrificial love and sacrificial giving for joy. He went. How do I get it? Follow me. But but what about that guy? Don't worry about him, Peter. Follow me. And yes, it's going to lead to some temporal pain. It's actually going to lead to a brutal death for you. Just don't worry about John. You follow me. Trust me, Peter. Trust me. In the end, it's all good. This is what it means if you've been following the last two weeks prior to this. The terms. This is what it means to never seek to love God with benevolent love. As if we are ever giving something to God that meets His needs. Never. We come to God to get our needs met. And don't ever be ashamed of it. It's the essence of worship. Just don't create what you think will meet your needs. God, I'm coming to you if you'll give me this car or this mate or this child. No, no, no. You go to God and you trust Him in the Scripture. That's the answer of what you need. All of His promises, all of His commands are His provision for our long-term future unending eternal happiness. Just think about it. How stupid this would be when we get this twisted around. And we easily get it twisted around in this world. When a doctor, a physician, commands us to go and get cut on and get this procedure, and then after that for three weeks, take this medicine as I'm commanding you to take, it would be really stupid and silly to boast 
If we, we, I paid him. I obeyed my doctor. I got the surgery and I took the medicine. Look at me. Aren't I great? I served my doctor by obeying him. It's odd, isn't it? No, your doctor served you. Your doctor commanded you for your good. Your doctor saved your life. And that's why you obeyed Him. You trusted Him. See, Jesus destroyed that weird, silly kind of, look at me, when Peter spoke up and said in Matthew 10.28, Look, Jesus, we have left everything and followed You Jesus said, Truly I say to you, Peter, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the Gospel who will not receive a hundred times now in this life houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Peter, don't mess it up in your head. If you don't, come to me, Peter. If you're not acting and forsaking all, because you know that in me I will give you an infinite treasure bigger, then you're not coming to me at all. Becoming a Christian is not just an intellectual decision to say a sinner's prayer. This is what we mean by core value. Number two. And we mean in this church to define this for the sake of our children and for the sake of everybody else who walks in here. It is not merely an intellectual decision. It is seeing Him who is true and conjunction here Got to have them both. Loving Him whom you see in the truth of the Gospel. See, saving faith is like... Let's just put it this way. Because new birth causes saving. New birth does a change. But So before that, it's like me growing up, a person who hated onions. So, I did not like cheese and onion enchiladas that my mother would make. So like most of us know, and we have kids like this too, you have toothpicks that go into the other enchiladas that say there's no onions in these. Okay. But the Gospel says, love cheese and enchilada onions. I couldn't just make a decision to love them. 
Oh, I, I, I could have walked down an aisle on a Sunday morning in a church service or a big stadium in evangelism, and I could come up, and they could have taken a fork with a cheese and onion enchiladas and said, Look, no, no, you really want to eat this because this will deliver you from eternal condemnation. I could, oh, I could have taken the cheese and onion enchiladas and put them in my mouth and started chewing. Okay, I can do that. Yeah, okay. That's worth it. I'll go through that. But that's not saving, eating, or faith. He, or little Joey, which did happen later with onions, needed my taste buds for onions to change. So that one day, cheese and enchilada onions. I did try onions over there now. That was okay. Man, do that. And I eat them. I love cheese and enchilada onions. That's saving. Eating. This core response of tasting and enjoying the glory of God in Christ is the essence of saving faith. And it is core value number two. I'm going to close here in the next two minutes by just summarizing the first two core values that we have seen. So you can see the connection. The ultimate goal of creation is the glory of God. It's the glory of His internal essence of the Holy Trinity extending outward into creation. Get that? Step two. God's internal glory is His understanding and His will. His will. He has been eternally with His omniscience, all-knowing mind, eternally understood Himself so perfectly that He has always been as a subject looking and knowing Himself as His eternal object, the Son. Always understanding, but not just that. And His will. He has willingly I loved or adored that which He knows to be of Himself. So God's internal glory is His understanding and His will. And therefore, then, God creates humanity made in His image, which means at least with the faculty of a mind and a will to understand and to choose to love what is beautiful. And He's done it in order to extend His eternal knowing and loving of Himself into finite creatures where it will be reflected in their seeing and understanding what He reveals of Himself and loving that. The one 
goal in all creation is God's internal glory, joy that He has in Himself going outward. And this is the great news of the Gospel. Because God values His own glory above everything, therefore He values the joy of His people in that glory. And this is core value number two, is what we are to be consciously pursuing as a church. The purpose of creation and of redemption in Jesus Christ is our delighting in and finding our true joy in God with the very joy that God has in God personified in the person of the Holy Spirit whom He has sent to dwell within us. And this leads to the next core value the next time. The Bible. And the Bible coming through preaching also. Why? Because you cannot delight in someone whom you don't know. Let's pray. Father, I I trust because of Your Word and I trust my experience that You're working. You're working in us frail children. Frail, broken people. Sinners who are being saved to this glory, who are tasting again and again, only in part, only as a down payment, as your Apostle Paul told us. And we know with this great hope that one day we will taste and eat in full. Oh, I beg that in me, and that in us, you would grow our appetite. You would grow our capacity for fellowship, communion with You, alone and in the community of the saints. To our joy and to the extension of Your glory through Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.